Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, go ahead and move back to your seats. Welcome, everyone. I assume a lot of people um, are having that, that Taylor Swift hangover today. Uh, out there, preaching, preaching the good news, preaching the gospel, which is what we're here to do today. Um, so we are in the final Sunday of this series that we've been in, The Human God, where we've been allowing the gospel of Mark uh, to tell us the story of Jesus, to recenter us on the truth of who Jesus is, as God revealed in flesh, all in God, all in human, all the time. Um, which really beautifully uh, kind of dovetailed with Easter last week, and today we're looking at the very final portion uh, of this passage. Um, and I kind of finished out last week here. Uh, we're invited to step in and take over the telling of the story by living as if the human God is no longer in the tomb, but is risen to the right hand of the Father. Nice and verbose. Uh, would you expect anything less from me? It's going to take at least four lines. But that's how we, we do things here. We like compound sentences because, you know, we're intelligent people. Um, so one of the things that we talked about last week was uh, in Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, it's kind of seen as like the official end of Mark's gospel. Um, and then the piece that we're looking at today, verse 9 until the end, if you notice in your Bible app or in your actual physical Bible, there'll be like a little asterisk and it says, uh, you know, most of the earliest trans, like, uh, uh, versions of this uh, gospel that we have don't have uh, these verses attached to it. So we played with that a little bit last week to say, what if this was the end? And if you remember, it's a very startling end to the story. Uh, the uh, few women, they go to the, the tomb to dress the body of Jesus. They get there. He's not there. The tomb is empty. They're told by this man in white that, you know, in other uh, Gospels is mentioned as an angel, um, that he has risen, and they're to go to Galilee, talk to Peter and the other disciples. And then it says the women uh, left, and they were tromos and ecstasis, which we said was to be traumatized and ecstatic. And then it just ends. And it's, well, it actually, actually just says, and they didn't say anything to anyone. And you're like, uh, how do we know about it then, you know? Um, but, but just kind of reading that, that ending of Mark as something of a parable, where a lot of times the, the parables that Jesus told, it just, the story just ends, and there's this complete lack of resolution. But it, it's this brilliant move to say, okay, what do you think? Like, what happens next? And that's the invitation for us to step in. And so today we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20. Um, these are probably uh, added as a compendium later on that other people looked at potentially Matthew and Luke, um, kind of decided to, to kind of sum up the story of Mark. These look like they're snippets maybe of Matthew and Luke. There's not necessarily new information in them that wasn't already in the gospel of Mark, um, but it just kind of rounds out the story a little bit, um, and that's where we're headed. So I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll get right into this scripture. Heavenly Father, we testify to the truth that you are here and that you are with us, that you work with us, that wherever we go, uh, there you are, and we have this opportunity uh, to connect with you on this profound level, um, that your love reminds us of who we truly are. Your love reminds us of how far we've already come, and it reminds us of how far we have still to go as we grow in maturity in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning as we're kind of wrapping up this story, um, that we would be captured again by the image of Jesus that we see, that um, we would be in awe of who he is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and what he will do for us. Um, Lord, I pray that that would always be our first priority when we come into this place. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts. Be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is Mark 16, beginning in the ninth verse. 
When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form and two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Amen. So somewhere in this room, there is a live snake, um, and we're going to test who's a, who's a true believer and who's not. Uh, by the end, we'll see where this goes. How, did anybody actually grow up in that kind of snake handling kind of? You did? Love snakes. Just love them in general. Yeah, that's great. Never turned into a stick? You got to have enough faith, bro. That's, that's how that works. So what I want to do, I want to talk through some of the things that we see in this passage, and then we're going to talk about the Great Commission. And I know for some of you, there's like, there's a joy and elation, like finally we're talking about evangelism. For some of you, there's a deep sense of dread, right? And you're thinking about like people with sandwich boards on the corner of the street, like yelling at people and telling them they're going to go to hell for going to the clubs or whatever. Um, it's a very, very loaded idea. And what's one of these things that oftentimes we come in with these preconceived notions, whether it's something that we're really passionate about or it's something that we have a deep aversion to, and we cannot hear what Jesus is trying to say to us in it because it's such a loaded concept. And so I want to invite you to do the best you can to be open-handed with some of the things that I want to lead us through today. And if you disagree with me, that's okay. Again, my email is loy at citybeautiful.ch. That's where you can send all the complaints, um, and someone will get back to you shortly. Um, but I think, you know, as we're on this continued path of maturity, as we're thinking about being strong and taking heart as our yearly vision, um, we have to engage with something like this with a real high awe for what it is that Jesus is currently calling us to. So here's a few observations about the narrative itself, and then we're going to get a little bit more into the Great Commission. Um, so number one, um, in this portion, we are reintroduced to Mary Magdalene there in verse 9. Um, it says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. That's probably just an indicator, um, again, that we've already met her. Like we, it had already, like the previous passage, she was one of the women that went to the tomb. So it's just one of those kind of narrative devices. We say, oh, yeah, it feels like this is probably a little bit added on. But what we see here, again, is this image of the women go and they share. They, they are the first preachers of the gospel. Do you know that? The women are the first evangelists. They go to proclaim the good news as Jesus is from the dead. And because these men are men, they say, nah. Even though Jesus has been talking to them about it for like three years. Because in their culture, you do not accept the testimony of women. Um, and then... Jesus appears to some other people walking on a road, and they go to the disciples, and they're like, nah. You know, they're really struggling to understand this, so of course, when Jesus comes to them, he rebukes them personally for it. And then he speaks uh, Mark's version of what we consider uh, the Great Commission. This has got a couple of variations in other places in the Gospels. But I want to break it down by a couple uh, different uh, lines. First off, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, now, how many of you, when I read that, that kind of piqued your interest? You're like, oh, I've never really noticed that, that it says all creation. Preach the good news to all creation. I think that's very important for us to recognize because what that automatically says is that this salvation project that was inaugurated on that Easter Sunday almost 2,000 years ago is for the whole world. It is good news for 
all of creation, not just human souls. And again, this is one of the lenses that we so often have when we're talking about evangelization, we're talking about preaching the good news, is that we've internalized this rather modern idea that the good news is about human souls being saved so they can go to this disembodied place called heaven when they die. And that's, that's, the, that's it. That's the good news. Everything else, hell in a handbasket, baby. How many of you grew up in, um, you know, in kind of a church where um, any kind of creation care is suspect, right? Uh, because... God's going to burn the whole thing up anyway, and we're going to go off to this other place called heaven, um, where it's a distraction from the gospel to talk about our relationship uh, with nature itself. Uh, deeply, deeply unbiblical. I will take you through the psalm sometime and prove that to you. Again, loy at citybeautiful.ch. So we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. When I first read that, I immediately thought of like St. Francis of Assisi who would go out and he would preach to the birds of the air and he would preach to the creatures because he took this very seriously. And so automatically what it does for us is I think it challenges our understanding of what we mean when we say salvation, when we say good news, to say, do we expand that good news to be big enough for the whole world? Um, the next line that Jesus says is, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And so what Jesus is laying down here was this very important pattern that it's belief not as just intellectual assent, like Jesus slides a piece of paper across the, the table to you that he ripped out of his notebook and says, check yes or no, and you're like, yes, and now you're a Christian. Like that's, we, again, we think because belief for us just means like an agreement with statements that that's what it means to be a Christian. But what Jesus means by belief and what the early church meant is participation. So to believe is to, to agree to participate in this relationship with Christ that is marked by baptism. That baptism is the symbolic move from death to life. Literally, when we go under the water, it's like we're being buried and we die to our old selves. And then when we come out of the water, we're being brought into new life. We're being brought out of slavery into freedom is the other parallel that we see with the story of Egypt and the Red Sea. Like these patterns are continually enacted in the community of faith to say, you have died to your old self, you're being made alive in the new. Um, you are being set free from the slavery of, uh, of the old world into the freedom of the new. And it's important that we recognize um, that that is a one-time thing we do. Even like last week, we talked about the Nicene Creed, and it says we believe in one baptism. So we don't believe in multiple baptisms. Um, we don't, uh, you know, go to Baptist camp every summer, and we're so concerned about our salvation that we'll just go ahead and do it again just in case. No, we believe in one baptism because it's a mystery that we have been caught up in. And on the other side of baptism, we're learning through participating with Christ what it is that just happened. You know, I've always said it's very similar to a marriage. Um, and any of the couples that I marry, um, Eli and Cassidy will know this. Um, Garrett and Dakota are going to know this in like six months. Woo! Um, if Garrett was to come to Dakota, and this totally sounds like something he'd say, and he says, listen, I did the math. I know everything about you. I know everything about me. Like, I'm so confident in this that it's definitely going to work. Will you marry me? Dakota would be like, you're an insane person. No. What really happens in marriage is you come to someone, you go, I don't really know who you are, and I don't know who I am half the time, but I'm committing with you to figuring it out, right? Married people, does that sound about right? Again, I, I hear rumors, okay? Um, and that's what, that's, our, our baptism is like our marriage ceremony to Christ to go, I don't know who you are, and I don't know who I am half the time, but I'm going to stick it out to find out. So our baptism is not a is the sense of like, oh, now I know this when I didn't. It's I'm participating in something. There's something about Christ that draws me in, and I recognize his saving work in us. So whoever baptizes or believes and baptized will be saved. And then comes this really tricky line, whoever does not believe will be condemned. And how many for you, that was the one, that, that was the cortisol release. You're like, oh, God, I've heard this before, okay? Um, again, context is everything, Okay. When we line that up with something like John 3.16 through 18, does anybody have John 3.16 through 18 memorized? Sword drill? I hear, I hear little snippets. Come on, somebody. 
I guess. Wow, in the New King James. That was good. The believeth in him. And then what is it? But the next verse says that for, um, for God through Christ did not come to condemn the world, but the world already stood condemned, okay? So this is very, very important. Christ does not come to condemn us. Condemnation is the work of the Satan. We already stand condemned because we have, we have divorced ourselves from intimacy with God, from recognizing that God is our source. So it says, whoever does not believe will be condemned. That is not Jesus doing the condemning. That is us choosing to withhold ourselves from God. And how we often define heaven is communion with God and hell is isolation from God. And then finally we see this interesting little line that Jesus is taken up into heaven. Now, one of the ways that we read that in our world, um, because we kind of have this weird relationship between heaven and earth, again, heaven being probably up there, like there's a firmament, and that holds all the stars, and then on the other side of that, that's heaven. Um, I feel sorry for those suckers that they're launching into the moon, right? Like, they're going to be real, real worried when they bump into that firmament. Uh, this is the science center, by the way. Yeah. Um, taken up into heaven is language about Jesus' authority not his distance from us, okay? So to be taken up to heaven, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to say this is his proper place, this is the authority that he has given, because what do we see in that very last line? The disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accomplished it. So when Jesus is in heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, it doesn't mean that he's far away from us. It means he is empowered to be fully present with us, and he works with us when we go out into the world. And I think that that is absolutely fascinating, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is currently interceding for each one of you by name, and he's empowering you as you go out into the world. And so the 11 um, that Jesus is sending out, they're about to kickstart this new era called the kingdom of heaven through word and deed. And that kind of brings us to, to our place in the story. If we're called to take up the story and move on, like, what are we supposed to do? And I think this is important, really important to recognize if we're going to redeem and bless the idea of evangelization. We aren't called to simply, simple replication, but inspiration. So the question becomes, how do we look upon the world the first disciples were sent into and draw comparisons to our own? Um, we are not called just to do the thing that do the exact same thing that they did and like it's some sort of formula or program and assume that that's going to work. But what we do is we watch, and this is the beauty of the book of Acts, which is absolutely phenomenal, is watching these guys and then women go out and, and try things. And, 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 and they're really sensitive to the cultures that they're, they're going into and how they're engaging with people, how they preach the good news, not just through standing up and giving speeches, um, but through their solidarity with people, their, their willingness to have meals with other people. Like there's, there's so much more to it than just proselytizing. So here's a couple similarities and a couple differences that I think to our world. And when I say our world, um, I'm talking about 21st century Orlando, Florida. That's what I'm talking about, because that is where you and I are called to, okay? Like, some of you will go to Albania in your life. It's probably not most of you. Although, if you have a heart for Albanians, come to my house, meet my neighbor, Frank. He is, he has a thing about Kennedy for some reason that I still can't figure out, and he's great, but he needs Jesus. Um, so, some of the similarities. This one might shock you. Um, the faithful are a minority, Okay? In the first century, you have to remember, it, it be, kind of begins in Judea. That it's a, it's a, this is a Christ, Christianity, as it becomes to be known, was called the way, and it was seen as a strange version of Judaism. Indeed, we would say it's maybe like a messianic Jewish movement. Um, and then steadily, over time, Gentiles start to be incorporated into that. So if you know the story of Acts, you know it's this very awkward thing, and the kind of leaders of the church, Peter has to come in, and James, uh, and Paul, and they're kind of figuring out, like, okay, what's the place for Gentiles in this? Like, what, what are we expecting them to do when it comes to the rules? And that kind of awkward incorporation takes uh, the better part of the first century. But 
the, the true faithful people were a, a minority. Did you know that like the book of Romans, which would be like Paul's theological masterpiece, it was written to like 150 people in the city of Rome, okay? Like that's our church. Like if we were the only Christians in, the, like in Rome, that's what we're really talking about. It was not this widespread movement at the time. The other thing that I think is similar to our world, which is going to kind of be more of the main crux of what we have, um, is that primarily, at least in the beginning, um, these followers of Jesus are speaking to their fellow Jews. So there's some sort of commonality in faith. They're looking to uh, revitalize a faith or bring um, closure to some of the questions in the Jewish faith. Um, that, that's, that's sort of what they're dealing with. Like there's, there is some engagement with pagans, with people who do not know the name of God. They do not know anything about Judaism or the temple. Um, but their first move is kind of these people that they're basically coming out of the same culture. Um, here's the major difference, uh, to be painfully uh, obvious. We live in a culturally Christian society. Anybody disagree with me on that so far? All right, great. Um, so we'd have to have words after. Um, they are going into a non-Christian world. They're going into a world that does not know the name of Jesus. So when they're talking about Jesus, this is a radically new thing. For us, we live in a culture where everybody kind of knows the name of Jesus. Um, I would posit that we're growing, we live in a society where the vast majority of people have grown up, quote unquote, hearing some version of the gospel whether they grew up in church or it was just kind of in the air or whatever it might be. Uh, maybe people were baptized. Maybe they went to church for a time. Like Christianity is, for better or worse, a part of the fabric of our society. And that is a very important distinction that we need to make from the first, uh, from the first disciples of Jesus. Um, how many of you like statistics? You're like, yeah, Okay. Maybe I should be more general before I give you the statistics. Because So this is from the Pew Research Center talking about um, faith and religion in Florida. Just to, and, and from what I understand, Orlando, we're pretty much on par with Florida at large. Uh, Florida is 70% Christian. It's uh, 6% non-Christian religion, so uh, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, and so on. And about 24% atheist or agnostic, okay? So atheists uh, do not believe in God. Um, and about an agnostic saying, well, I'm not quite sure. That's kind of, you've maybe you've heard about the, the rise of the nuns, people who would consider themselves not religious. 88% um, of Floridians believe in God to some degree, okay? 88%. The question is, what, what is that God or who, what, that, that idea of God, where does that come from? Where have they brought that in? About 10%, so these would be your atheists, do not believe in God, and then about 2% are not sure. Those are the people that I hate in polls. Do you ever see these polls? Like, and there's like this significant portion of people who are not sure, and you're like, this seems like a very obvious thing that we're polling about, you know? And you're like, just make up your mind or don't even answer the questions. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. Okay, so we've got 70% Christian, that's Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, etc. 88% believe in God. 35% attend church weekly. 33% of uh, Floridians attend church once or twice a month or a few times a year, and 31% seldom or never attend a religious uh, gathering. Um, when it comes to prayer groups, study groups, education groups, anything like that, that would be more during the week. 25% of Floridians go once a week, 59% seldom or never. Um, and there's other stats about how many, like, the, the amount of Floridians that would say they pray every day is, is massive. Okay, so um, I'm not crazy about these stats because there's a whole lot going on here. It doesn't take into account generational drifts. Um, one thing that I was reading made the observation that prior generations would be less likely to say that they don't believe in God because there would be a cultural pressure to say that you do, even though you don't. Um, my generation, uh, the millennials uh, and younger Gen Z would be far more comfortable was speaking about that because it is more acceptable nowadays. So it's very hard to kind of really ascertain what these things truly mean and how do you really measure what somebody claims to believe. Um, but this, I think, is, is my uh, bold claim 
for today that I want to unpack, that our mission field for us, particularly in Florida, Orlando, is mostly not unchurched, okay? So 70% of Floridians would claim to be Christian. 88% of Floridians would claim to believe in God to some degree. Our mission field is mostly not to unchurched people, but people who we would consider de-churched, disillusioned, and deconstructed. Now, I do not want you to hear that in any way, shape, or form that I'm saying we are exempting ourselves from people who truly have never heard the gospel, have never been to church, have never engaged. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we have to be sensitive to the world in which we actually live if we're going to reclaim and redeem this idea of evangelism. So how did, how did we get here? How did we get to this moment in history? Um, I've told the, the story many times before, um, and it shouldn't be a shock to many of you, but what we see kind of in the... like kind of 18th, 19th century, into the 20th century, this rise and this institutionalization of evangelicalism. Um, Anytime anything becomes an institution, it's very tricky because it becomes so overly codified um, that it loses sensitivity to the place, and especially with that rise of evangelicalism, um, there were some things that were really wonderful ideas at the beginning, like the idea of having a personal relationship with Christ, absolutely, um, a, a deep emphasis on scripture, yes and amen. But over time, when those things, when, when things aren't kept fle- flexible and flowing, they tend to stagnate in institutionalization. So over time, what happened is that the evangelical movement em- had an emphasis on biblicism. Um, I've, and I've told this story before, Phil Vischer, who invented VeggieTales, he said, um, biblicism is the biggest threat to Christianity in America today, where we... We overemphasize the Bible as like the handbook for life or it teaches us moral lessons and we forgot what the Bible was really there to do, which is to lead us into relationship with Jesus. And so that's a big, big problem. That's why so many people know a lot or think they know a lot about the Bible, but it's been mishandled within the church and so then it becomes mishandled outside the church. Um, The second thing I think is the overemphasis on personal salvation. Again, which I think is a great thing. We should all have a personal relationship with Jesus. But when that becomes the only focus, again, the Great Commission becomes about going out and saving human souls only and not perceiving all of creation. We've overemphasized it. So what happens then is it's all about me and my relationship with God, and I don't really care what happens to creation itself. I don't really care what's going on in other countries. I don't really care what's happening in other denominations because they probably don't have it right. You know, like when it's only about my personal salvation, I shut myself off from recognizing this very big claim um, that we are to preach to all creation. And then thirdly, um, of course, political collusion and the culture wars, that during the 1980s, Um, the evangelical movement largely aligned itself with political movements seeking power, and there was kind of a, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine sort of thing. And and what happened was that we were looking for a bigger seat at the table as Christians. The problem is we got it. You know, Kierkegaard says the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. Um, And we started to fight the culture wars instead of standing out and being these, these faithful ambassadors of Uh, of the gospel. And so we kind of moved from the Billy Graham Crusades, um, which was a huge, even, you know, evangelistic movement in the 50s and 60s. I have the highest regard for Billy Graham. Um, But what happened is they got lots of butts and seats, and they didn't do anything with the people once they got there. In fact, they entered into this policy of just continually saving the same people over and over again making you question your salvation. Well, maybe it, maybe it didn't really happen at that revival. So on Wednesday night, you have to come and you have to do the whole dance over again. And it kept people in this immature place where there was no discipleship or spiritual formation. It was just about evangelism over and over and over and over and over again. How many of you, kind of your experience, you just kept getting evangelized, but you didn't really get discipled. Um, so the Billy Graham Crusades moved into the, the 80s and 90s, which was called the Seeker-Friendly Church which, again, from the best intentions, we want to make this more approachable for people. What happened was, let's dumb down our faith. Um, Let's use really simple words. Let's use really simple music. And let's make it so accessible that there's absolutely nothing compelling about this faith. Because honestly, if you just want to know how to have a better marriage or manage your finances, there are things out in the world that are far better at doing that than the church is. Um, And we, in the seeker-friendly movement, started slowly to give people the wrong expectations of what the church 
was supposed to be, and we actually made it kind of intellectually bankrupt. Um, and then finally, oddly enough, what we're seeing now, kind of you imagine this pendulum swings kind of sort of politically liberal and conservative. Now we, we, we're entering into an era where not only do we have the kind of last bastions of that seeker-friendly movement um, or the hyper-conservative, you know, partisan politics thing, but we have a very apologetic progressive movement in the church who feel like they need to apologize to the world on behalf of Jesus um, and soften Jesus a whole lot to make us more palatable to other people. Um, and so you find this strange moment that we're in in the church today, and all of this speaks to our mission field. That's what we're stepping into. We're not stepping into a world that's unchurched by and large. We're stepping into a world of people who have been disillusioned by the church, who have been hurt by the church, who it just really didn't do anything for them because they were coming with questions and they didn't get good answers for those things. Um, but one of the surprising elements, I think, about where we're at in history today is how many people do believe in something greater than themselves. They believe in a higher power, that people are recognizing that we're living in some sort of a meaning crisis, that the modern era, whatever, whatever it has done, has produced in us a complete lack of meaning. And I talked about that a lot, how we set, you know, we, when we don't have a sense of meaning to our lives, we settle for comfort and happiness as being our primary values. Um, but, you know, in the 90s, we were all taught how to fight atheists um, who don't believe that there's any kind of higher power, right? Did you guys all have your, you know, you had your little things you were going to throw out at them? And now we've got people that are, like, super into horoscopes and, like, you know, uh, believing in auras and, like, all this, like, kind of supernatural stuff. Even Daniel was telling me uh, last week, he's, he's mentoring a young man in Winter Park, he's about 19, and he and his friends are practicing Ramadan. Now, think about that for a second. He doesn't know anything about the religions or the faith. He doesn't know a whole lot about Christianity, but he and his friends are so desperate for religion, for a structure that gives their life meaning, that they're going to practice Ramadan, which is this kind of, in this Muslim festival of uh, fasting that we're in currently. Now, that's interesting to me, because what that does to me is it says, what are the questions that this kid and his friends are asking? What are they looking for in life that he's finding? Again, it, he probably doesn't believe in Allah. He's not like a, a tenant of Islam, but he found there's a practice there that's giving his life structure and meaning. That, those are the kinds of questions that we should be asking. So what do we do with this? We, we live in this world that's largely not unchurched, but de-churched, whether it's people that have left church or they grew up in a family that was kind of culturally Christian if they never went to church. It's kind of in the background. I love um, Flan the writer Flannery O'Connor. She said, the South is not so much Christ-centered as it is Christ-haunted. Um, and I say, yes and amen, right? Like, we feel that. So how can we be faithful to Jesus' command to go into all the world but knowing what world it is that we're going into and having our eyes open. I think there's two moves that we make here. First, our first evangelistic posture is to be the faithful church on display for a disillusioned world. Um, when I first stepped into this job, I, like many of you, was very obsessed with conversations about the American church, the Western church, the blah, blah, blah church, like the big ideas of the church, and I would get caught into the thing, and People would constantly send me stuff on social media, like this kind of, you know this like religious rage porn? Do you guys fall into that sometimes where you're like, can you believe this Christian nationalist thing? And they're like pledging allegiance to Trump and AK-47s and Jesus and da da da. I'm just like, oh, I can't believe this. And I got to this point where I was just like, LOL, like, I see that thing. I see that. And I'm very, very confident because I have seen wild animals trapped in a corner and what happens to them in those last dying gas when they know that their time is up, that they really start to go, to go hard. Like, I've seen that in wild animals and I see that in Christian nationalism. Like, I think that's the thing that's actually going to happen. But at some point, I got so exhausted by just tr dunking on all of these movements and what the church isn't that I got to this point, I'm like, I just want to put more energy into being a better church, right? Like, I, don't, I can't do anything about an, an NRA convention where they're 
you know, worshiping Jesus and all. I can't, I can't do anything about that. What I can do is be a good church here, now, with you and me. Like, and I think we're so, like, emblematic and symbolic in the way that we see things. Like, to participate in this thing with our actual friends and our actual family somehow, like, has this, like, we're, we're associating with this, that, and the other. I think that that's a really problematic way to live. And I think especially, you know, that we live in this era that uh, Brad that calls the Great Deconstruction. It's recognizing, like, okay, as the church, as the faithful remnant of Jesus, we do have a lot to answer for. Um, we don't completely ignore and divorce ourselves from those things that we see being done in this world in Jesus' name. Um, but we don't spend so much time just fighting those things that we stop to ask, are we trying to be more faithful? Are we trying to be better? And I think that's the opportunity before us. But I think our first evangelistic posture is to get the house in order, to reclaim what it means to be a Christian, to reclaim what is it that makes us distinct, what is it that we are actually offering the world that's more than just marriage seminars and getting your financial house in order. We see this as an, like, as an evangelistic move, if you don't believe me, let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses, beginning in the 42nd verse. This is after Peter preaches uh, on Pentecost. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, maybe you didn't even think about that as evangelism. But I think, interestingly enough, our first evangelistic posture is to position ourselves to the world as an alternative society to say, when we gather, this is what it looks like when God is king. And we see this time and again in the scripture. It's the people that are going about their daily lives, that they're meeting together, they're eating together, they're, they're worshiping together, they're focusing on the scriptures and the teaching together, the radical generosity, that it's the people that are outside of the church that looking back and go, that's interesting. There's something happening there. And God was adding people on to them. It's a question of what set them apart from the world that they were in, that they lived in this disarmed way. It was their devotion to Jesus. It was their devotion to one another that people that were outside the church noticed that and said, there's something there for me to explore because that speaks to the deepest part of me. So our second evangelistic posture is to be sent as faithful ambassadors of King Jesus into a disillusioned world. <clears throat> so our first is to be the church. Our second is to be sent out. Um, and maybe you're not handling snakes in your daily life or drinking poison. Although, Dakota, are you dealing with any snakes right now? No snakes? What animals are you working with right now? Dogs and cats, okay. I think there's a translation that says you will handle dogs and cats and not be bitten. Um, <laughs> And that's a sign of you being faithful. Most, but most of you, you're not in these extreme scenarios, right? Like you're not traveling to foreign lands and you're not doing these things. Some of you are. But you are out there. You are out in the world. You are out in this world, 21st century in Orlando, Florida. <coughs> and you're being sent as an ambassador. When, like, when Peter, for example, says that we are a royal priesthood, and he says that we are the colony of heaven, He's saying you are going out into this world and the way that you posture yourself to the world is a reflection of what you believe about Jesus. And again, what we see in the Great Commission that Jesus at the right hand of God, it says the Lord went with them. And I think a lot of times what makes evangelism scary to us is we feel like we're out there on our, our own and that we're being exposed. But we have to trust that the spirit of Jesus is within us and he goes with us, and he works through us to show love to other people. And I think the other part that makes evangelism so scary for many of us is maybe you were raised 
with a, a results-based evangelism? How many of you had to like make an account of how many souls you saved that day? You know, like that sort of thing. Some of you. It's, it's not about measuring the results. It's about being faithful. To say, was I faithful with the time that I had with the people that God brought into my life? Because that kind of results-based evangelism thing that I do think needs to die and I think is, it just leads to manipulation and coercion. And we believe that the spirit of Jesus is not of coercion, uh, but that it's this, it's this beckoning, it's this welcoming in. So we see this um, in 1 Peter 3. Peter talks about this exact thing. And I love that he speaks about it as resurrection people. He speaks about it um, through this lens of Easter. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter is not saying prepared to give an answer means that you need to be able to explain all these doctrines and blah, blah. He says, no, no, can you tell people why you have this strange, radical, unreasonable hope? It's not about sword drills. Can you tell people what has happened to you, like what Jesus has done to you in a way that it might enlighten them to recognize that that is available to them as well? To always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive... Oh, nope, not that verse. So we, when we go out into the world, we exude Christ in word and deed. By what we say, by how we present ourselves, by how we treat people. We are giving testimony to the Christ in us, the hope, this strange hope that we have that it's going to, as Billy Graham said, I've read the last page of the book and it's all going to turn out okay. Like we live in that reality as Easter people. And I love that the, the kind of the counterman that, that Peter's giving here to do this with gentleness and respect because I think that requires a, a sensitivity and a listening to the people that God has brought into our lives, whether they're members of our family or their coworkers or their friends, or maybe it even is a stranger on the street. Can you hear the underlying questions in someone's story? Do you hear their concerns? Do you feel a sense of their, their pain? Like, can you empathize with somebody because I think that's the thing that prevents us from falling into the parodied version of evangelism that's just about proselytizing and superimposing things over people. Um, I mean, especially, you know, sin and hell are not categories that one understands until one has actually met Jesus. So you can't scare people to get to know them Jesus by giving them a vision of hell. You tell people who Jesus is and they meet Jesus and then they begin to understand through that what sin is and what hell actually looks like. Again, as that isolation from God that we can experience today. Um, so I think sometimes it just feels like the, our options are either this like parodied proselytization thing where we're notches on our belt of how many souls we've saved, or we live out of shame. And we put our candle under a bushel. And we hide the reason that we have this hope because we don't want to be offensive, uh, because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But I think that there is a third way for us to be bold um, in speaking about this person that we know who has loved us, who has loved us into new life and has transformed us. So I mentioned a moment ago about this great, great deconstruction, but I think when I look at church history, I think what we really are experiencing is that we're in another Reformation movement. I think scholars, if the world still exists in 100 years, who's to say? Again, we're not doing a great job at uh, taking care of the earth itself as part of the good news. Uh, but if it does exist in a couple hundred years, people will look back at this era and say, that was another reformation. Like 16th century, Luther, Calvin, etc. That's happening right now. We're in that era again. And that's why it feels so messy and scary. But we must trust that the Lord works with us when we go out into the world. He will not abandon us. We should not abandon him. And I think that that's really the push for today. And so what are the antidotes 
to some of those illnesses that I do think have permeated um, the recent American Christian experience. I think, number one, that we need to move from this emblematic blanket statements thing about the Western church, the American church, the evangelical church, blah, 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 whatever. We need to move from that to say the local expression of the church, that's the realest thing. Like what you and I are doing here, like it almost doesn't matter what they're doing elsewhere. You and I are following Jesus together and we're learning how to be radically generous together. And I think the more energy we put into actually being the church in our era, the more we're going to see that sense of revival. Number two, we move from biblicism to sacredness. That we treat the Bible really seriously and we do believe that it is sacred. It's sacred in the sense that it leads us to know Jesus. And so when uh, Christians, deconstructed Christians, non-Christians, like when they're wrestling with Bible and they've been taught how to do Bible by the previous generation, where it's just about looking for facts and moral stories, we say, no, this is actually the way in which we draw close to Jesus and that he speaks to us. We have to move from only thinking about personal salvation to believing the good news for all creation. That we have to believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is actually big enough to, to, to save, to heal and restore every single um, iota of creation itself. That all, the entire universe, every created thing is being saved, it's being gathered up in Christ for restoration. And in that, we put our personal salvation to say, I'm part of this larger thing that God is doing in the world. And that's the invitation for all of us. We have to leave behind political collusion and obsession with the culture wars. We are not doing anyone in the world any favors when we just blindly align ourselves with political parties or where we fight these culture wars using the tools that are already kind of laid out on the table by these competing political narratives. It dulls down the thing that we actually have to say. And I think what we have to say about a lot of these things is really good. But when we just blindly abdicate our role as Christians to becoming conservatives or liberals or whatever tribe, and we do that first, we've missed the mark and we represent Jesus rather poorly. And so we lay claim to that bold statement that Jesus is Lord. And that's what we allow to be our witness when we enter into the political arena. We need to move from prescription to witness. That we're not called to go out into the world and wag our finger at all the things that everybody's doing wrong in the name of Christ. Sorry. It's easy. It's way easier to do that, right? It's way easier just to go out and wag our finger at people for all the things that they're doing wrong. And then if we actually have the influence, well, we're just going to legislate the kingdom over you and just call that evangelism. We're not doing that anymore. Like, we, we evangelize through witness. We offer our lives to the world around us and we tell stories. We tell stories about who Jesus is, what he has meant to us, and we bless the, the things that we see in the lives of the people that we're connected, where God is drawing them in. And I've said this, I don't think that we have, we are not the only people who have access to the Spirit of God. We just know what God's name is. That's the difference. Like God is speaking and God is moving all around the world through all different religions and lack of religion. And he's speaking to people. Our job is just to kind of go out into the world and be like, I know, yeah, that's exactly right. That impulse that you have, that desire, that we, it's called Jesus. Um, and we need to learn to develop both boldness and empathy. That as followers of Jesus, we are sensitive, we are tender, but we tell the truth. We tell the truth. We are not ashamed of who Jesus is. And we're not, our boldness does not make us insensitive. It does not make us prescriptive. But we become, what scripture tells us elsewhere, we become the sweet aroma of Christ. That the way we live our lives, the way that we treat people, it becomes the scent of Jesus that goes out in the world and draws them in to him. So I want to invite you to stand with me. I know that was a lot, especially on 11 verses. But I think it is really important 
that yes, we recognize this has been done very poorly in the past, um, but it doesn't mean that we shy away from it altogether. We just ignore Jesus's great commission, but we take him really seriously and say, what does it look like for me to live this out in my life in the place that I've been put? And I think when you come to God with those kinds of questions, he's going to give you that sort of prophetic imagination to see your unique role to play in fulfilling the Great Commission. So I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna invite some of our elders and our leaders, they're gonna come down and they're gonna be on either side. And if you need prayer for anything, uh, maybe there's something in this that's just, it's not sitting with you well, or maybe you need to confess something, you need to kind of bring it before the Lord. These people are here for you. Um, They are bold in their prayers, they are tender, in their spirits, um, and I, I want you to trust that they want to help you draw close to Jesus so that you, um, you can grow in maturity and you can be emboldened. So I'm gonna pray, and then the elders and the leaders are gonna move. <clears throat> so Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for um, this challenge that you have sent us, that we are a sent people that you have commanded us to go into all the world and to preach the good news to all creation. And Lord, when I see the people in this room, I think about how beautifully diverse that singular call is. All the people that we're connected with, the situations that we find ourselves in, the favor that we have granted with friends and family and coworkers and strangers alike. And Lord, would you grant each one of us the boldness to not be ashamed that we know you, that we have been transformed by you. But give us the tenderness also to preach the good news out of a place of witness, what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have touched, what we have experienced, that we might be the sweet aroma of Christ to a world that feels disillusioned, de-churched, confused, that in our time we can rescue the beauty of our faith on behalf of the people around us. So bless us, Lord. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to do whatever you desire to do in this moment, in this space. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.